Jim Collison, we're live here again at the Heartland Developer Conference in Omaha 2015. I'm here with Matthew Renzi. And Matthew, thanks for taking a few minutes to be with us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Um, your session, you have a session coming. Actually, you have two sessions yep. with us. Before we dive into one of those, and maybe a little bit of both, tell me a little bit about where you're from, what you do, you know, the vitals, so people kind of yep. get to know you a little bit. Well, I'm an independent software consultant with uh, over 15 years of professional experience building large-scale data-driven desktop server, web, and cloud-based applications. I have double degrees in computer science and philosophy with a minor in economics, and my focus was on artificial intelligence and machine learning at cool. Iowa State University. And I'm also a regular public speaker, and I've worked on a couple of uh, pretty cool open source software projects, and I'm also uh, just recently became a Pluralsight author. Oh, How's that going for you? Uh, so far, How so many good. sessions do you have out um, there? I'm working on my first course right oh, cool. now, which cool. coincidentally is exploratory data analysis with R, which is one of the uh, yeah. sessions I'm doing today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about that, because that's one of your sessions when we talk about, uh, do we get all this data. Mm -hmm. We got to do analytics on it. Yep. R has been something at Gallup we have been talking about and using uh, for quite a while now, but it is kind of making its way into the scene, yes. right? And so we think, from your session, what are you hoping to to get, I mean, what are you hoping people walk away with when you come out of your session? Well, I'm targeting it towards the, the average developer who's interested in, uh, who's working with data on a day-to-day -day basis and interested in learning how to leverage that information and transform it into like valuable insights. So by using R, which is a statistical programming language, uh, we're hoping that they'll use that kind of on the side, not as their primary programming language, but use it to do a bit of exploratory data analysis, learn about their software, uh, learn about the data that they have, and help hopefully make help decision makers make decisions based upon data. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of promises of data analytics yes. over the years, um, and I'm not close enough to it today to say are we we're whether we're doing it right or we're not. Are we doing it right or aren't we? Well, it's to my understanding that um, you know we have more data than we know what to do with. So in our current data-driven economy, the scarce resource is actually people with the skills and knowledge in order to transform that data into valuable insight. And so what we're hoping is that with educational sessions like this, we'll be able to, uh, to teach software developers how to transform data into knowledge and thus make it valuable. Yeah, well, okay, so it's easy to say. Yeah. Transforming data into knowledge, yeah. way harder to do. Yeah. Uh, over the last years, we've made big advancements in hardware that's made that more possible to get done. But where are we Where are we doing it right from that standpoint? What's working really well in that area right now? Well, I think the key right now is education. So we've got people that are data scientists, and these are kind of these mythical unicorns that, you know, we don't even know who they are, what they look like, yeah. or where they really exist because it's such a new kind of profession. In yeah. fact, uh, there's even debates as to whether they should be called data scientists or not because it doesn't follow the traditional yeah. scientific method. Right. So I think the education is the key component. I mean, we have all sorts of tools and stuff available but most people don't know how to use them yet. Yeah. So by having a programming language like R, but not knowing how to use it, your data is not going to magically transform itself into right. anything. So I'm hoping, uh, at least with what I'm doing, that I'll help to educate the general public on how to use tools to do exploratory data analysis. And I really think we have to go all the way back down to school and teach you know, like young children how to interpret, read, and transform data as well, so that when they get into the profession you know, a decade from now, they'll actually be viable. So can I teach that to junior high and I mean I think so. Um, in how, fact how my 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 belief in it is such that I actually created an open source data explorer. It's it's kind of like a um, a piece of software that allows you to uh, just load up simple data files and then kind of explore the data, almost play with the data and kind of 
in highly interactive and engaging ways. And my intention was that I was hoping that students would start using it. Um, I actually found that uh, some graduate students at Iowa State University started using it. Yeah. And then I didn't really think it would take off in the business landscape, but it was kind of my hope as well. So I'm hoping that tools like this will essentially make it easier to learn how to, to transform data and to understand. Yeah. I'm fascinated by it. We at Gallup run a high school internship program. Yep. And we began, when I started with Gallup, we started working with master's level students. And then we thought, well, let's go back and see if we can get undergrad. And then they challenged me, could you do this with high school kids? And we're actually thinking about now, how do we do this with junior high students? Yeah. So in our case, we're interested in getting them excited about object-oriented or yep. software development, traditional software development in that sense. What I'm finding, just last night, we had a parents' night uh, for our high school program, which starts in September. And they, um, one of the kids says, I'm a sophomore at this high school here in Omaha, and I've written nine iPhone applications. Wow, that's I'm, impressive. I'm like, why? first, why? But second, like, that's really cool. I, it's interesting, though, as you say that, to yep. think about we could push this. What is it about the, what is it about the science when we, when we talk about R and those analytics? What are a few of the disciplines or maybe even one of the disciplines that kids aren't getting today that would help with that as you see it from a data science standpoint? Well, I think the first thing, at least from my perspective, is that it would be terribly boring to most students unless you could make it very engaging. Yeah. And so like um, at Iowa State University, I go back every year and I judge a, they call it a, a computational thinking competition where they have the students create little programs and then compete to see who yeah. has the most interesting problem solving. Or uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that they're gauging them on. But if we were doing the same kind of things with data, where we had these little data uh, yeah. competitions so that students could take a data source, something they're interested in, whether it be astronomy data sets or um, I don't know, Pokemon yeah. trading card data sets, and yeah. then analyze the data so that it's something that's interesting, appealing, and understandable to them, then they learn the techniques for working with data with something that's actually of interest. Right. Otherwise, this would just be terrible. No, right on. We have found, in fact, we changed our program name from, in, from internship to innovation because we want to focus on solving problems. Yes. Oh, and by the way, you might learn some code. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, in the that's how you have to do it. No, that's a great, in that's fact, interesting. My niece right now is really interested in Minecraft. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm trying to get her interested in doing like uh, little code modifications yeah. to Minecraft as a, a subtle way to, to get her interested in coding, yeah. but because she's so interested in Minecraft. Otherwise she would never no. learn No, 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 right on. And I think it's a subtle way of getting yeah. right out. Well, I got to learn Python or uh, oh, boy, I got to learn R in this case. Um, are you aware, so are there open data sets that are available? So if I was going to create an open data set and say, hey, come up, we need to solve some problems, yeah. what, where would you go for an open data set? Um, I use a lot of fun data sets from a lot of the universities have like their machine learning, uh, like public data set repositories. Yeah. So I use stuff like uh, movies databases. In fact, my presentation today uses uh, the 2003 movies database, just yeah. something fun and interesting that yeah, everyone yeah. can relate to. Right. And it's not like, here's the you know uh, statistical whatever, you know, yeah. That no one's going to care about. Have you pulled any Twitter data or any? Yes. Um, I did a project that involved uh, sentiment analysis, yeah. uh, or latent sentiment analysis, it's called, where we look at certain words and whether they have a positive or negative connotation and then determine whether the tweet overall had a positive sentiment or yeah. not based upon those keywords. Yeah. I think that'd be a good set to get to. Yeah. Uh, Twitter kind of limits that, but I think most people could get fresh, relevant data and then. Because I was just thinking about some junior high programs. So realistically, if I were going to start a junior high, let's so we're saying 12, 13, and 14-year-olds, and I was going to have them get into R to use R to help with that, what's the realistic setup for something like that? I mean, what could I expect 
or what well, would I expect? I don't know that R would be the ideal platform okay. to get young yeah. children started because even as a programming language, I think most developers even find it difficult. Okay. It's uh, based on a very old statistical programming language called S uh, from Bell Labs back in 1976. Right, right, yeah. And so it has a lot of uh, C-like programming constructs, but um, I think you would almost need a, a language that's uh, better suited for uh, children to get into, like Python would probably oh. be something that would be better. Okay. But I think even before that, getting them interested in uh, interactive data visualization tools so that they can kind of draw the data you know, uh, to the screen and move sliders and faders to interactively yeah. engage with the data would be the first step. And programming comes later down the road. That's cool. No, that's this. I didn't expect to get into this conversation, but it <laughs> lines up so nicely with what we're doing. In fact, we had our high schoolers do a Python, a session on Python this yep six weeks of Python and we, we, in fact, we called it the summer of Python and just because, and so I am thinking, wow, we could back that up to junior high and have those junior high kids working on Python. In fact, uh, this, the, the college student teaching the class uh, talked how to write a, a Python script that mined Twitter, uh, yep. right? That goes back and pulls stuff out and interesting. Okay. Huge rabbit trail, but okay. let's bring it back to your session. Anything else from your session as we think about that of, of things that if you were, you you want to get across in what you're talking about, um, I think the big thing is that uh, there's essentially a flood of data coming our way, whether people realize it or not. I mean, we're already waist deep in data, and yeah. it's growing exponentially every right, year. Right, right. And so, in order to be uh, viable in this new information economy, you're going to need skills in order to transform data into actual insight. Right. And so, having skills and tools like working with R and having exploratory data analysis skills will essentially be a necessary set of, set of skills in the IT world going. Yeah. Forward. So I think it's valuable in and of that. No, very cool. From a industry adoption standpoint, when we think about big data, or yep. and, and I know it's moved on, Internet of Things is the cool word now, but yep. we still got a lot of data out there. If you were to guess kind of a percentage of how much we're actually taking advantage of all the data we have out there, have I you thought through that? I don't even know how to answer that. My guess is it's vastly less than what we will once we have the tools and knowledge in order yeah. to work with how far property. How far are we away from having that? I think we're just... This is a Scratching the, the surface. Yeah. The stuff that I see coming out every year, like the stuff most people probably don't know about in terms of what businesses are able to do with machine learning algorithms, yeah. is almost actually kind of scary. Right. And, I mean, we're really going to have to change the entire landscape and the way we think about uh, how to use this data in order to um, integrate it within our society in a helpful and healthy way. I think. Yeah. Uh, before we turned on the record button, we were talking a little bit about some lighting and some motion yep. sensing stuff. And I made a comment to you that I said, you know, Pretty soon, we're getting so granular in our data sets, especially when you think about control and lighting. So yes. in a building like this, thousands of dollars a month goes into lighting this place, and it could be more efficient. Yep. But the data to get that almost requires machine learning. Yep. Doing any thinking around that, yeah, so that piece? The client that I currently work for, uh, we do power over Ethernet-based intelligent lighting control for okay. LED lights. And, and so, can I oh, yes. can I say what's the advantage of doing power over Ethernet versus just standard traditional Wi-Fi? Like when we think of the lighting today. Well, first off, um, it's the the high voltage versus low voltage. Okay. So. Uh, it doesn't require uh, dealing with high voltage electricity anymore, which makes modifications to the infrastructure extremely easy. The install costs are cheaper. We're already running Cat5 cables through the building Got for uh, the internet uh, functionality anyways. Yep. And it's also, um, it gives you fine-grained sensing and control of every light and sensor in the building. It's a, a common web so that everything's working over the same like Cat5 cables. Yeah. And you use your existing switching infrastructure, you move all that stuff back to the server room, and it's now an IT asset rather okay. than an infrastructure That asset. makes sense. 
Yeah, there's quite okay. a bit yeah, of yeah. value in it. And okay. then once you have that fine-grained sensing and control of data, you can do things like apply machine learning algorithms in order to optimize the buildings for energy efficiency, do things like predictive maintenance where you determine, well, statistically, this number of lights has gone out this year, so we're predicting that this number will go out. And based upon the way the, 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 the uh, telemetry we're getting from the light, this light here is probably going to go out sooner than everyone else. Yeah. So there's a lot of very powerful things. You, can do. you know, there, there is. Is this, I mean, IBM's been talking about this yeah. kind of stuff for a long, is it the same thing? Um, machine learning is a relatively general category. It's yeah. essentially uh, a set of algorithms that do one of probably four main things, whether it's classifying something uh, or doing numerical regression uh, or doing clustering or some kind of prediction. And so um, as, essentially you can, you can, lump them all together, but there's new algorithms coming out all the time and uh, vast improvements. For example, the uh, the recent developments in deep neural networks right now have, have just blown away the competition of the previous generation of algorithms in terms of their uh, accuracy in predicting things, visual things, uh, detecting uh, like words and sounds, uh, in addition to other things too. In fact, I read recently that the uh, that the machine learning algorithms are now better than every human doctor on the planet at oh. determining uh, whether a, a brain tumor is is cancerous or not, uh. because it actually detects areas outside of the tumor itself, which are also equally are very important in determining whether it's cancerous or not. So, wow! I mean, it's it's going to be very interesting to see how these uh, machine assisted diagnostic tools, uh, you know, yeah, transform no, society. and wow, think about when we think about nano sensors. Yep. And getting into the body and being able to detect things and and do it do their stuff and report back. The internet of very tiny things. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure, and and very actually very helpful things yes. from that standpoint. Going back to the lighting discussion, is LED the? I don't want to say the future because it's already here, but. Yeah. Is it the end game from a lighting standpoint, or are there other technologies ahead of that that will make it? Because LED is yep. super efficient. I just I just installed a, a new light in my garage and put four batteries in it, and they're like, this will get 36,000 lights yeah. before you have to replace the batteries. Well, I don't know if in terms of hardware, if there's something beyond LED. I'm yeah. sure they're working on all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, but what I do know is that even with LED lights in your building, you can still do things to vastly improve the energy efficiency like using uh, uh, like ambient light sensing or daylight harvesting as we call it, in addition to being able to detect you know motion in the building and optimize those uh, motion detection algorithms and also balancing rooms so that you're only using as much light in each area of the room as is necessary to meet a certain desktop light level. Yeah, and so, but to measure that, you have to have other sensors in the room yes. that are measuring that as well. Is that a wash from a, from a power um, standpoint? I don't think so. Given the numbers I've seen, and I, I can't quote any of the numbers because yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know the financials, but um, uh, essentially it looks like there's a pretty big margin for improvement. Okay. So, yeah. like significant. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, I think, when we think about uh, energy, we, we're trying to increase, increase our batteries yeah. to get better. The equation, though, has changed. We're, we're actually reducing the usage of them. Yeah. We're getting huge gains in them because we're reducing the way. I keep thinking, man, we can't get any more efficient, and yet they continue to figure out more and more and more ways to yeah. get efficient from that standpoint. So, no, a very cool discussion. When you look ahead five, six, maybe even ten years, yep. what, what do you get excited about? I mean, in your field, where you talked about the medical implication of this already, but what's that leading to? Are there things beyond that that you're kind of like, man, I cannot wait till we get here? Um, yeah, actually, there's a lot of things, probably more than I could enumerate in a yeah, sure. amount of time. Yeah, sure. Maybe pick one or two. I, I think the most <laughs> important thing for me is that what we see is that the 
productivity enhancing technology that we're creating actually enhances itself. So the rate at which we're increasing is actually growing exponentially rather than you know a linear like slope. Yeah. So essentially five years from now is going to look like more like 10 years ago in terms of difference because yeah. it's continuously getting faster and faster. So uh, but, that's very impressive. But are we ever going to stop working so hard? Um, I don't know. At, at some point in time, like our, our technology will, this. will surpass like uh, it's in the 70s. We were like, oh, we're going to automate all this stuff and it's going to make our life so easy. And we're going to work 30, you know, 30 hour weeks. Yep. And we're going to, you know, lap a luxury and we are working harder. And, and uh, listen, I'll be honest. Yep. I like working harder with some of this technology. I'll go out and work hard because there's so many things I could do. Yeah. I don't know if it's making me work less, but it is making me more productive. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, you know, we always predicted that we'd only we'd be working 30 or 20 hours or less. But what yeah. actually happened is everybody wanted to keep up with the Joneses. And so <laughs> the amount that we spend is yeah. actually so much that we were actually forcing ourselves to have to work this much. True. We really, when you think about it, we've it's met true. all, after we've met all of our basic needs, there's diminishing marginal return on each additional unit of happiness we buy with the yeah. money we have. So we probably could do a lot better with less yeah. if we wanted to. You know, we studied that at Gallup. That's actually in our well-being book. We have some numbers that say after this certain amount yep. of money, uh, you stop. It stops changing your happiness, yeah. which is really, really interesting. So it's interesting that you you kind of quote that <laughs> uh, in there because we believe that too. Uh, although I think our quality has gotten a little bit better in that as well. So we're doing things... Um, you know, go to Beijing today and yeah. look at the quality of the air. Go to New York City and look at the quality of the air. Uh, New York City was where Beijing was 40 years ago, 50 years ago. We are, I think we are getting a little bit better, but it's, yeah. it's certainly, I keep thinking, man, I, I work more hours. Uh, although I work more hours having more fun with some of the stuff that I've, than I've ever done. So, well, hey, thank you for taking a few minutes to do this very interesting discussion, and I appreciate your time. Uh, Jim Collison, we're back at Heartland Developers Conference 2015, day two. We are interviewing uh, session keynotes and session leaders. I'm here with Trevor Sullivan, and Trevor, you did uh, you actually did the Wednesday sessions as well. Uh, kind of those were more hands-on uh, sessions that we did on Wednesday, and then you led one yesterday morning. You are talking about PowerShell, but before we dive into that, tell us a little bit about you. So where you're from, what you do, who you work for, how you got here. How about that? Sure. Um, so I, I'm currently working as an independent uh, cloud and automation consultant, and uh, I live in Fort Collins, Colorado. So I'm actually heading back this evening. And uh, I've lived there for about eight months now and uh, absolutely love the state. It's it's a beautiful area. If you like hiking, if you like outdoor stuff, it's, it's the right, great, right spot to be. Great for the be. outdoors, for oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Camping, uh, yeah. No, it's, it's a good way to spend a weekend, that's for sure. Yeah, you mentioned as well, we were talking uh, earlier, you're an MVP for Microsoft around around PowerShell. What, so what's it, what did that take? How long have you been an MVP, and what kind of things do you do with that? So I've been a PowerShell MVP for two years now, and um, you know, the, the key thing with, with being an MVP is really to have a, a deep level of technical knowledge and also to be able to articulate that in a fashion that other people can understand. Um, so what really helped me to kind of achieve that status is um, to, to continually blog and, and you know you got you, you got to allow yourself to fail too like you can't you can't go into blogging and expect to instantaneously be yeah. a, a world-class blogger right, right you got to right. work your way up to that status you got to learn what works what doesn't work you kind of got to learn what your audience is interested in yep. and um, you know it, it takes a lot of time yeah. and so I started blogging back in 2006 and if I look at some of my early work it's a little embarrassing I'll <laughs> <laughs> to be completely honest, yep, but you know yep. what? That's okay. Uh, I don't. I don't. Uh, 
I don't reflect on that too much. And I just kind of focus on going forward and learning from those experiences. Yeah, if it makes you feel any better, podcasting is the same way. And so we always <laughs> say create 10 and then throw them away. Yeah. Because you'll, you'll go back. Uh, blogging is very similar. I started back in 07 blogging. And so if folks wanted to find your blog, where would they find that at? How would they find you? Um, so I'm, I'm in a lot of different social media channels. Um, I, you can find my blog at trevorsullivan.net. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, Way too much. I think I'm up to thirty thousand tweets oh, cool. almost in the in the near future. Okay. I'll be I'll be hitting thirty thousand. And um, so I've been tweeting since two thousand and eight. I'm at PC Geek eighty six. Uh, Trevor Sullivan .net's my website, and you know you can find me on other channels like Stack Overflow and GitHub and things like that. Yeah, let's talk about PowerShell a little bit. We're going to do PowerShell, and then we'll talk a little bit about Azure because I want to get your your take on Azure. But you know, if as a Windows experience guy on the MVP side, we always we always hear when it gets difficult, you use PowerShell, right? Oh no, you can do that through PowerShell. Oh no, that can be done in PowerShell, right? Um, and I always look at those, and there's they seem to me to be very complicated scripts to, to put mm -hmm. out. But talk a little bit about so if, if you were coming with somebody who knew very little about PowerShell, give me kind of a basic overview because it's changed and it's gotten better in the last in the last four or five Definitely. years. What um what would you tell them? Well, the thing about PowerShell is that it was designed from its inception to be a very admin-friendly language. So PowerShell was kind of designed for people who needed to automate tasks in their environment but didn't necessarily have the um, you know, programming knowledge in order to achieve that. Um, so when you look at other scripting frameworks, things like Perl, Python, even VBScript back in the day, um, the, the, some of these frameworks are very hard to understand for non-developers. You actually have to study development. And the, the, the big benefit to PowerShell for brand new users is that um, all, all of the commands are, are very easy to understand. They follow a standardized syntax of verb dash noun. So I'm going to get an object. I'm going to change an object. I'm going to create a new object. And once once you kind of have that, uh, that core understanding, everything else just kind of balloons up from there. So what kind of, give me an example of some of the, if I were getting into PowerShell for the first time or I wanted to begin to use it, what are some of the simple things you start with to kind of get get yourself into it? Sure. Yeah. Um, some of some of the common tasks that people find themselves using PowerShell for are things like file system automation, copying files around, creating text files, manipulating text files, maybe just simple logging just to uh, log the progress or status of an application that's running on a server. Um, you know, manipulating the registry is another common task. Um, you can uh, stop and start processes, so a lot of just kind of common Windows core tasks. Mm -hmm. And then once you get familiar with those things, you can kind of apply those those concepts to other technologies like SQL Server, SharePoint, Exchange, uh, Microsoft Azure, and uh, others. Yeah, so and then for you, like today, what's the best of PowerShell? What are you guys doing with it today that's, you know, the the best of it? Um, so, so I've been working a lot lately with um, the Microsoft Azure Cloud Platform and uh, automating the cloud platform using PowerShell. And uh, when, you, when you really start to kind of get over that hump of, of, of kind of babying your servers and babying that hardware that you've got on-prem and you're like, you know what, I really want to move to the cloud, you start realizing the power of being able to instantiate resources. Like you want a SQL database, you don't have to worry about installing SQL Server, you don't have to install Windows Server, you don't have to create a VM and then install Server and install SQL Server. 
it's just it's a very painful process for admins to to have to go through all this provisioning and if i could simply call a, a single powershell command to instantiate a sql database up in azure and i can connect to it from any application that's a very powerful concept mm -hmm. if i want to spin up a vm in azure couple commands, boom, I'm done. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the speed and flexibility of provisioning resources in Azure is is a huge use case. And was that your Wednesday? Your Wednesday class here, the Azure piece? And yeah. So talk mm -hmm. a little bit about, so what did you walk through, just kind of the high points of that, and what kind of questions did you get from that group? Sure. Um, so so the, the Wednesday half-day workshop was in the morning from 8.30 to 12. And um, the attendees of that class essentially learned how to uh, use the Azure PowerShell module, which is available from Microsoft. It's actually being developed on GitHub as an open source project, which is kind of a, a paradigm shift for Microsoft. <laughs> Very much. Just a paradigm. little. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's a massive PowerShell module with hundreds of commands that allow you to provision and deprovision and uh, configure uh, Azure Cloud resources. So what they kind of did was went through the process of understanding, well, how do I, from PowerShell, how do I, how do I access my Azure subscription and then how do I start actually creating different types of resources, whether it's a virtual machine or a SQL database or a, a web app or uh, a, a cash uh, account or what, what have you. And, and this would be opposed to just going through the admin console. And you, I mean, you still could continue to go through the admin console in Azure, mm -hmm. set all these things up. But if you're doing a lot of them, right, the power of this is it's less clicks to have to go through. Mm -hmm. And you can completely script and automate it if you're setting up one or 10 or 15 of them, right, from that standpoint? It, am I getting that right? Absolutely. Is that um, right? I mean, you hit the nail on the head right there, it's just, which is that, you know, automation scales. Right. Automation removes uh, or it limits the impact of human error on uh, IT processes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, automation really sells itself. Um, I, I don't think you really have to talk to anybody and, and try to convince them to actually use automation. It's more of a what do we want to automate and how are we going to make that process uh, flow from a, a business standpoint? So do the best PowerShell users just know it in their head and type it or is there a lot of cut and paste going on? Can, can you build scripts that you just save off and then bring those in and run them? Is it, is it as simple as that? Absolutely. Um, a lot of a lot of copy paste uh, pastas going on, um, and and that's okay. Um, you know, w when you're initially learning a new language, you're going to look at other people's code, and you're going to say, how is how is this advanced user accomplishing this task in this language? And once you kind of uh, understand how somebody else is accomplishing it, you can then incorporate those techniques into your scripts. Yeah, yeah. With your blog, what are the common questions you're getting today with PowerShell? I mean, what's kind of the hot topic around that? What are people? What are you talking about? Well, one of the one of the popular topics in the PowerShell world is actually tooling. Uh, lately, um, in in the past, since uh, Windows Seven came out in PowerShell version two point there's been a tool called the PowerShell Integrated Scripting Editor or ISE, and it provides kind of a basic uh, debugging, syntax highlighting, IntelliSense, you know, so some pretty basic features of a of a, a text editor or a script editor. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, it's got a few deficiencies though. And so what's been happening lately is is uh, Adam Driscoll, who's another PowerShell MVP has been working on this extension for Visual Studio called PowerShell Tools for Visual Studio. And um, it's, it's, a, it's an open source project on GitHub. He's actually collaborating with some Microsoft uh, PowerShell core resources to develop that, um, that experience inside Visual Studio. So now inside Visual Studio, we actually have a PowerShell project file to keep track of our large PowerShell projects. We've got source control integration with uh, Visual Studio. We've got uh, integration with the 
uh, Kanban boards and the other workflow tools, uh, agile tools in Visual Studio Online through Visual Studio. Uh, we've also got uh, debugging support, syntax highlighting, IntelliSense. There's a lot of rich features that are available inside Visual Studio to PowerShell users now. And, and that's just an extension? Is it an open extension? Can any any developer get access to it and install it in Visual Studio? Yeah, yeah. If you just go out to uh, Google and type Posh Tools, uh, the GitHub. Uh, spell that for me. P-O-S-H-T-O-O-L-S, okay. uh, right, Posh thanks. Tools. Yep. yep. Okay. Uh, so just go out and search for that, and in the project's right there on GitHub. So you can download the extension, install it, and uh, you get these new templates in uh, when you create a new uh, Visual Studio project. And uh, you can just create a PowerShell project. I actually demoed that in my um, session yesterday morning. Oh, very cool. Yeah, no, I wasn't aware of that. That's available in there. I could see, though, as you think about the, the more you use this, having that all that availability of versioning and being able to check it in, check it out, those kinds of things. Get super handy for yeah. you guys, right? That would be that would be well with ad, with administrators who aren't familiar with programming. Um, you know, they're also not generally familiar with source control and the power that it provides. So, um, you know, just just because you can write a script and you know, you end up what ends up happening is you copy that script and you you call it .v2, then you call it .v3. <laughs> and unfortunately, that that type of source control really doesn't work well because somebody could just go change v2 without updating v3. And boom! Now you've got an inconsistency yeah. between one, two, three in your current version. So um, you know, source control is really important for administrative scripters just as much as uh, full application de developers. No, no, very cool. I think that's a that's a handy that'd be handy for most people working with it. Let's shift a little bit to Azure a little bit because this is for this year. I've done this three years in a row. This to me is the year of Azure from the way Definitely. we're talking about it. Right yeah. in the past, I would mention it. Well, we're not doing much this year everybody's working on it, which is pretty cool. Yeah. What are you seeing, just from a general standpoint as we think of Azure, what are you seeing that's the most interesting thing on that platform going on right now? Because they're changing it all the time, right? I get Absolutely. constant updates, <laughs> I get constant emails, hey, new services have been added yeah. uh, type deal. But what are you using or what are you finding to be the most interesting on Azure? Well, there's, a, there's quite a few different approaches to consuming the cloud. Um, probably the most simplistic uh, method of consuming cloud is to use infrastructure as a service where you essentially just extend your network out to the cloud using a site-to-site -site VPN or a high-speed connection like uh, ExpressRoute from Azure, uh, which provides a, a direct uh, extension to your MPLS network uh, straight up to Azure. So that's very powerful. And uh, what you can do is simply migrate your Windows and Linux virtual machines up to Azure and host that infrastructure there. So a key use case is that if you're running very expensive data centers, you've got a production data center, you've got a DR data center, these, these facilities are very expensive to run, even if they're co-located. So um, what you can do is, is take that infrastructure, take that aging hardware, instead of replacing your servers, which are ex incredibly costly, uh, you know, you can shift that infrastructure up to Azure. You can achieve similar performance. You can achieve a significantly more flexibility, and your total cost of ownership just dramatically drops. Yeah, no, and it, it, I'm finding we. Um, I actually run uh, as a as a Windows MVP. I actually run Windows instances up there. Yeah. Did a lot of my Windows 10 work on a VM on Azure. Spin it up, run it when I need it, turn it off. It's gone, yeah, right? which is pretty cool. And not everybody still has access to the ads, so I have to be careful with that because I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm running this on. Other people are like, I'm like, oh wait a minute, that's not available, you know, to the, to the, the Windows, general uh, public. Yeah, image, the Windows yeah. 10 <laughs> yeah. imaging. But I have been running as just as a standard home user. I've been running Windows Server 2012 R2. I mentioned to you, you know, we run the Essentials Experience, which is kind of a 
really nerdy home server backup concept for a lot of people, but you can run that on Azure as well. Yeah. And, and the so, great thing is that you have the flexibility to upload user images to Azure. So you're not restricted to what's in the image gallery. The image gallery is incredibly convenient if you just yeah. want to get started very quickly. Um, but MSDN users also have access to uh, the client images. So you've got Windows 10, Windows 8.1 images. And uh, so it's very easy to test out new software without destroying your laptop. Yeah, no, <laughs> no and, and very convenient to connect to it through remote desktop and do tons of things to it. And if you don't like it, you know, snapshot it. But if then if you don't like it, blow it away and start over. Uh, and you, very cool. And you also get the default PowerShell remoting endpoints. So as soon yeah. as you set up a new uh, Windows Server VM, you don't even have to RDP into it. You can just run PowerShell automation scripts, go configure it. You can use desired state configuration to do uh, declarative configuration. Very, very powerful stuff. We talk about PowerShell in the enterprise. Is there any PowerShell uses for the for a technical end user on in a Windows 10 environment? Uh, let's say, or a Windows 8 environment. Are there any applications for that, or is this only on the server side? You know, PowerShell works on Windows across the board universally. Yeah. And, and and that's the really cool thing, is that anybody who's interested in automating tasks on Windows, I mean, one of, one of the common use cases you might find for, for a, a, a non, for kind of more of a home user, a mm -hmm. consumer, might be to, maybe they may, maybe their music collection's like totally out of whack, right? And they want to fix their, their file naming conventions, they want to fix their ID3 tags. There's PowerShell modules and, and methods of scripting to where you could manipulate ID3 tags, manipulate other types of mm -hmm. metadata on your media Files mm -hmm. and um, and really kind of take control of your media library. Yeah. So there's quickly that's a good size um, images. Yeah. You know. Interesting. Uh, if if I were interested in doing something like that, but let's just say with my images, that's a lot. A lot of people have a sure. lot, right? Yeah. A lot of pictures now. Um, Especially in Colorado. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where's the best? Where would be the best place to go to kind of start picking up some of those scripts to be able to do stuff like that? What would be your recommendation? Um, you know, you know that that space is a little bit more limited than the enterprise space, yeah. just kind of naturally. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot more people that are blogging about SQL and Exchange yep. and SharePoint yep. and Azure uh, automation, but but. Um, the, the cool thing about PowerShell is that you can actually, as long as you have a fundamental understanding of the .NET framework, you can actually load in arbitrary uh, .NET assemblies into your PowerShell session, and you can then be begin consuming those .NET types. And there's uh, C Sharp .NET libraries out there that'll do things like image resizing, media encoding, um, just all sorts of stuff. You know, mm -hmm. ID3 tags for MP3 files. Yeah. Um, and, and so, if if you understand the .NET framework and you understand the PowerShell language, you can actually create some pretty advanced scripts. I'm not aware of any modules off the top of my head that expose sure. that through kind of a more friendly user interface, yeah. but uh, you I can mean, create one. There's an opportunity. Maybe there's a, <laughs> a blog podcast opportunity for, there you go. for folks to help. Because um, it would be interesting, I think, sometimes in those, especially in that area for photographers or for podcasters who are creating a lot of yeah. this rich content um, <laughs> around video, audio, and pictures to, to be able to have some scripts, some basic scripts to say, well, I'm going to run these, uh, maybe a dedupe process, some of those kinds of things, see how many are the same and uh, display yeah. them to me so I can make some decisions on Absolutely. getting that done. Well, well, Trevor, thanks for taking a few minutes to be with us this morning, and it's certainly interesting. Uh, tell folks again, if they want to find your blog, sure. where would they go to find that? Yep, so uh, you can find my blog at trevorsullivan.net, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at PCGeek86. All right, thanks, Trevor. Appreciate thanks it. Thanks so much for having me Thank on. you. You bet. Cheers. Jim Collison, we are here at the Heartland Developer Conference 2015 here in Omaha. I'm here with Adrian Koschak, and I, I've been working on that to get that right. But Adrian, thanks yeah. for coming out. I appreciate you being a part of the interview. No problem. 
let's, glad to be uh, here. Yeah, so it's good to have you. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about you, uh, who you are, what who you work for, where you're located, those kinds of things. Let's get that out of the way. Uh, so I'm from Chicago. Uh, I work for an organization called Parveda Solutions. Uh, we do a lot of technology consulting. Um, the my most recent projects have been in mobile app development, but uh, I. I'm doing a talk here at HCC about graph databases, which is uh, is a big interest of mine. Yeah, yeah. So let's why, why, how do you go from mobile to graph? That's, how did that happen? So uh, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I didn't exactly go from mobile to, to okay. graph. All right. So mobile just happened to be the, the thing that we were working on. Yeah. With our current clients, uh, but graph has always been an interest that that I I've had in mind even before we started doing mobile app development at my current sure. firm. So I've always been playing around with different graph databases uh, and just seeing all the different kind of ways it can be applied and all the all the areas that it can be applied to. Yeah, so let's back up a little bit. What is graph, right? For the for the average yeah. user who doesn't know, because this, is, this has been a fairly new term that's come on, a fairly new technology in the last five or six years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At least in the mainstream, what is it? Um, so it's a way to describe data, but the most important part about it is that uh, the relationships between different pieces of data are number one. They're, they're first class. They're the mo most important part of the database, the relationships, the, the connection between different nodes in the database. So it's kind of uh, moving away from the idea that I'm jumping all my data into these tables, and then I'm thinking about relationships secondary as foreign keys and primary keys. In a graph database, your relationships are primary. That's the first thing you're thinking about. Okay. And so was, was did graph come out of a response to the relational database systems that have dominated for so long? Or what was the need for something different than that? So I don't, I don't think it came as a response like as, as any kind of pushback from yeah, yeah. any of the existing technologies. But it, it's it's more something that, that augments existing technology, something that people are realizing uh, has a lot of value and uh, offers a new area that people, a new way to look at data, a new yeah. way to process data that they can get new insights out of and find new use cases for. And so what's the what's the primary benefit for me as an end user moving from relational because because that's dominated to uh, to this what what's the benefit for me? Um, while I mean there are a lot of performance benefits yep. for using a graph database cuz so graph databases are very good at traversals they're very inexpensive so if you want to find some information like who are Bob's friends, or who are Bob's friends of friends, or the shortest distance between two, two nodes. But I personally think that the, the biggest benefit of a, of a graph database is that it makes a lot of your data much more discoverable. So if you're looking at the structures that are found in your data in a graph database, and you're querying that, that structure, you're identifying things that you wouldn't have noticed yeah. if you just had it in a relational database. Right. So give me an example, like what's what's the coolest thing you've done to date with this, right? When you think about, man, I really nailed it on this one. What have you seen either worked on or that you've done yourself? Um, so 
I, I like to play around with an, the idea. So when I do a talk about graph databases or I talk about graph databases, one thing I don't really spend a lot of time on, but I'm super interested in is like dynamic graphs. So graphs that are changing over time mm -hmm. and then that driving some sort of feature or application. So something that I, I like working on is uh, this concept of uh, like a working memory. So you have your, your you have your data in your graph, all these different nodes that can represent different things. For instance, uh, individuals, social network. It's usually the the go to use case. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, that's where the data sets are right now. Yeah. Right. Those are the big interesting data sets are. Yeah. So, but the edges, those can also hold data. So mm -hmm. if I call that data that's in those edges working memory. As the graph changes over time, if the edge ever disappears because it's no longer relevant, then the data that is that goes along with that edge would also disappear. So that's something I kind of worked on. Uh, it was a very interesting kind of application for graph databases. Yeah. What were you hoping to get out of that? What at the at the end of the day, what was? So to be honest, the, just hoping to get something cool out of it. <laughs> <laughs> So it was more of an interesting. Let's see what happens, as yeah, opposed to yeah. already having a predetermined destination. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. No. And so I think Very that cool. what I found interesting about it is just the idea of trying to take a dynamic graph and use that yeah. to drive features in an application. Right. What's the future of graph then? Where is it as you look out mm, over the next question. couple of years? What are you seeing so far? Um. In terms of the future of graph. So there's this kind of struggle between Neo4j and Tinkerpop is now starting to come up and be a bigger and bigger deal. So Tinkerpop is a framework. Okay. It kind of it provides abstractions and interfaces, standards for graph databases. Mm -hmm. And as that becomes more and more popular and used more by more and more people, I think that's going to overtake uh, Neo4j where it stands right now. But the more important part about that is it allows the actual graph database implementation to be whatever it wants to be. And for something like a Titan, Titan DB, it becomes more scalable because that's the focus of what sure, they're building. Right. Versus like a Neo4j, which is really easy to pick up and really easy for individuals to use. But there's just more out there in terms of graph databases that you can use which means there's more, you have more flexibility in using the right graph, graph database for what you're going for. If you have, if you're trying to build a graph database with millions of nodes to, to figure out some really complicated query, then that technology will be there right. for you. Right. Whereas before it was usually just like, oh, we're just gonna try to handle some nodes here yeah. and then see what happens. Yeah. I don't know about scalability. And, it's really starting to mature as a technology. Yeah. No, right on. Right on. It's yeah, it's it's fun to watch these things and then there's always yeah. competing ideas uh, you know along those lines. What um so in your session what were you hoping like people would walk away? What was the one thing that you wanted to get across? The title was unique in, in that sense, but what 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 were you hoping they'd walk away with? So I I was hoping mainly that people walk, would walk away with a couple of things. Just the curiosity of just like just pick it up, just take a look at it. Mm -hmm. 
I want I want everyone to be aware of it as a technology that they can use. Mm -hmm. That it, it is a tool in your toolbox. Yeah, you should go ahead and try. I, I I wasn't trying to advocate it as a replacement for any database technologies, I, and I don't think it ever will be a replacement. But it is definitely a tool that everyone should be aware of and have. Yeah. So if you're working on a specific problem or you're trying to explore data in a specific way, graph databases are definitely something that you, right. should, you should be aware Good. of. Good. So it was a fairly evangelistic session. Barely, yeah. You probably showed some things like here's the value and the benefits to be able to get yeah. this done as well. Yeah. Very cool. What kind of questions or what was the most interesting question that you got um, out so of your session? One of the interesting questions I got was more around the the storage backend of mm. graph database. Mm -hmm. So they can be built on top of either existing databases, like a relational database, or they can just be native, like some a custom built storage. So someone was asking me about the importance of that and how it works with if it's built on top of an existing storage. Now the interesting part of that question was uh, the individual was asking because they had previously tried a graph database and it wasn't really scaling. Like they weren't able to get the benefits out of it that they thought they would get because they were throwing so many, so much data into it. Well, the answer to the question was that something like TitanDB or another graph database engine is built on top of something like Cassandra and HBase that allow them to take advantage of the fact that those technologies allow you to scale and take in much more data and explore much more data. So I was able to answer the question by explaining that to them. So, oh, very cool. so that, that individual could, <laughs> yeah. could uh yeah, yeah. Keep interest in the graph database talks. Like, don't don't worry that that it might not seem like it's sure <laughs> it's taking on millions of nodes sure. right now. Yeah. In the future, definitely there will be technologies that will be able to handle that. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, good. Let's talk a little bit about. You mentioned early on you do some mobile, and um, what what do you find interesting because you're in it. Yeah. Um, so I know your love is is in on the data side, right? Uh, I think that's come out pretty clear. But on, what are you seeing, or what's interesting to you on the mobile side right now? When we think about technologies, as you look at that, what are you finding interesting? Oh man, uh, the most interesting thing I, I think about in terms of the mobile side is this idea of like, I feel like there's a tug of war between, hey, I want a technology where I can build a mobile app once and deploy it to mobile <laughs> platforms. I don't want to have to worry about yep, it. Yep. Versus, I really like. I, I don't care about like those technologies. Yeah. I just want you to build a specific mobile app, native on an Android or yeah. an iPhone, because I want it to be the best mobile app that I could possibly yeah. build. This is that's that's going on right now. You've got yeah. these two camps that are fighting yeah. with each other, and either usually it seems like organizations are actually just flipping from one to the other. Where it's like <laughs> they try one thing and they're like, oh my god, this. This, it wasn't this, good enough. Wasn't Let's good try enough. Let's another one. I, I think that's an honest, you're the first honest assessment of that <laughs> scenario. Um, I've interviewed people from both sides of the camp. You know, one um, going mobile first was the conversation that we kind of had in that. Yeah. And, and then, uh, of course, a lot of folks are just saying, well, just run native. And then Microsoft guys are saying, well, you can do it all in Visual Studio and then yeah. you flip it. And so I think at the end of the day, it really depends on just what you want to do. Yeah, you know, it's definitely an it depends answer. It really is. Like no, you it's gotta, 
you got to look at a, a number of factors to identify if, if you should go the cross-platform route or you should go to the native route. Like, are yeah, you, or is, is maybe how both. Is it? Maybe. See, I think I think actually the answer might be both. Um, I. In my podcasting work that I've done, we have that same question of do you have do you drive them to a podcatcher? So do you, an iTunes, of course, they have a native one, and there's a lot of complaining about Android not having one. And so there's a variety of companies that are doing it. Or do you make your own app that you send people to yeah. to listen to your shows? But that's just your app, then. Then it doesn't have, you know, then it doesn't have the functionality of being able to bring right, other right. people's feeds in. And so, so that same argument. So I've done both. I have a site you can go to to listen to it. Point, yeah. I have an RSS feed that people can consume it with on their podcatcher. And we just are releasing now an Android and iPhone specific app for the podcast. It's like, because you almost need to find them wherever they're at. Almost. You know? Yeah. 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 Well, that's a, that's well, interesting that you say people, that. People just expect everything to work and be there when you want it. No, right. And have it work without. Um, uh, I interviewed a guy yesterday. We were looking at my at the website and. He showed me some things, and I'm like, "Oh man, I'm doing it all wrong. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to this weekend. I'm gonna have to do some work uh, to get it done." Um, on the mobile side, do you do you specialize in a specific platform? Are you an Android or iPhone, or or how? What what kind of mobile work are you doing? So, I'm doing currently for uh, my current client. I'm doing a lot of Kony work, which is a cross-platform framework, but I'm also using Ionic on projects for a nonprofit. Uh, so it, it, it depends. Okay. Jump around between. Yeah, that's and that's real common too. Yeah. You know, kind of, kind of mess. I'm going to mess with this, and then I'm going to mess with that. I'm going to try this, and then I'm going to try it. It's yeah. not unlike in the early days when I think of the '90s, the middle '90s, when we, when the PC was first coming on the scene, and we were really developing a lot of apps, and and for that, and the web, of course, in '97, the web came on the scene and really changed the whole way we looked at things. There was never a consistent methodology across any yeah. of those platforms. You know, you do yeah. a lot of browser-based development in those days, a lot of Windows-based development in those days. So there was, was a there was a company uh, a friend of mine who works for a company recently came up to me to ask me about my opinion on whether they should go cross-platform or native, and we ended up deciding that for them it was best to go native because that they, they were so focused on the user experience yeah. and they wanted to make sure they got it right. Yep. And their their audience for, for what yeah. they were doing were mostly just individuals that had an iPhone or an Android. So that was able to narrow it down to just like, yeah. you, know, you only need to build an Android and an iPhone app. I still like think all both those factors. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know about both. I think, <laughs> you know, because your users are going to come in, sometimes they don't want to do an app. Yeah, they just don't. Yeah. They're like, you know what? I want to go to the website, and I just you have to make. I think you have to make both experiences work, and uh, it, it's hard. I just, it's I just super don't like, expensive. I, yeah, I yeah, just yeah. don't like going and be like, <laughs> look, guys, you're gonna have to do all this stuff. <laughs> Actually, all of it is what you tell. Them. All but of it. Don't worry. You can hire me to do it. <laughs> don't worry. Use graph, right? Yeah. So, well, Adrian, you thank throw you. Throw it into a graph. You'll be fine. Let's throw it into the graph. You'll be fine. Any, let's let's combine these two. When we think about using Graph uh, on mobile, are there are there areas where that's happening? I I don't know of areas that I've seen where it is happening, but I definitely think 
it can and should happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you'll be right in the middle of it, right? I, I hope so. Yeah, yeah I hope so. <laughs> yeah, no, good stuff. Well, Adrian, thanks for taking some time to be with us today, well, and I appreciate it. Me. If folks wanted to track you down, uh, if they had some questions for what you're doing here, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? I guess the best way is just uh, shoot me an email. I, I'm on Twitter at A-K-O-S-C-I-A-K-A-K-O-S-C-I-A. Uh, but if you have a specific question, I uh, no problem answering it All by right. just emailing me at adrian.koschak at parvetasolutions.com. Very cool. And we'll try to include that in the description of the YouTube video when we're done here. So if you're watching it on YouTube, just look down in the description down there, and uh, hopefully we'll have that updated by now. Adrian, thank you. Thank you.